It's been a good morning so far, amen? Well, uh, we've got some visitors in our church this morning. Must be, must be all that outreach we're doing. It's good to have you. Hey, Logan, can you turn on the lights? Thank you, young man. All right. Good morning. So um, at, at our church, uh, for those of you that are visiting, we've been going through Philippians. So we're getting toward the end. We're in the final chapter. Um, Philippians, for those of you who are not familiar, is uh, a letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, who he had planted uh, years before. It's written during the first century. So it's almost 2,000 years ago, but it's hitting on issues that are really, really relevant even today. We've talked about things like people who preach the gospel for selfish reasons, and we've talked about um, humility, and we've talked about um, uh, the right way to look at death. We've talked about a lot of issues that are still relevant for us today. Last week, we started chapter four, and our passage brought up the idea of reconciliation. That means making peace, taking something that's, that's in conflict and making peace. We are called to do that within the church. We are called to do that with our world, making peace with our Lord. But what about all the other conflict that we experience in our lives? Last week, it was about conflict in the church, interpersonal conflict, arguing about things that that don't matter. Because Christians do that, amen? Sometimes, sometimes. Uh, But what about all the other stuff? When you experience conflict, when you experience uh, hurt and trouble in life, and we do. What do we do with all those things? How do we find peace in times of trouble? Well, Paul's going to answer that in this morning's passage. So if you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. You can turn there in your Bibles. If you use the Bibles that are under our chairs, it's on page 982. And you can also use the outline that's in your bulletin, or it'll, you can catch it on the screen. Before we start, we're just going to read the passage, but Remember that this is God's word. This is God's word to us. It's for us. Let's let it do something in us today. Amen? Let's let it change the way that we think. Let's let it shape us and sharpen us as we we move forward. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This passage has three commands It's really got four commands, but the fourth one is tied really directly into the promise at the end. And what's interesting about each of the commands in this passage is that they come up over and over and over again in the Bible. You can find them from Genesis through Revelation. God, through generation after generation, is constantly telling his people some things. And some of those things are found right here in this passage. And that's because We live in a broken world. We live in a world of sin. We live in a a fallen world where peace doesn't come naturally. That's why I love the song that we sang this morning, that this isn't our home. This place is a place of brokenness. We are, our home is a place of peace, 
Our home is a place of love. We, li- we live here now, but it's not our home. We are sojourners. We're missionaries. This place is temporary. I think what, 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 uh, what Connie said was that we're just passing through. We're just passing through. So you can't escape the conflict in this world because it's part of this world. We won't get out of it until we get to heaven or until Jesus comes back. But we can deal with it. You can deal with it. Here's how. This is what the Bible says in this passage. First off, rejoice. Rejoice. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, just so you know, I wasn't joking. Again, I'll say rejoice. Paul's in prison. So lest you think he's just goofing around by saying, hey, go rejoice. Everyone should be rejoicing right now. Always. You should always rejoice. Paul's saying, no, I'm not kidding. Always rejoice. As a command, rejoice comes up almost a hundred times in the Bible from Leviticus to Revelation. And often it's commanded as a response to times of trouble. For example, in Joel chapter 2, It's describing a rough time for Israel. Things are are not good. The priests are weeping. The people are are saying, this is verse 17 in Joel chapter 2, Have pity on us, Lord, and don't make your inheritance an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the people, where is their God? For Israel, this is a time of trouble. The priests are weeping. People are, sh- are crying out. Why, do, why does being an Israelite look bad among the nations right now? What, why have you given us this inheritance that is, is becoming the scorn of the other nations? These are times of trouble, but God has a plan. He promises to take care of them. And then in verse 21, God said, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Rejoice is at least in part a call to remember God's faithfulness. But it's also a call to actively look for what he's doing. Paul makes that extra clear in Philippians 4 when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord, if you were here last week, you would remember, maybe, that Paul was addressing two women who were fighting in the church, and he told them to agree in the Lord. That doesn't mean agree with each other. It means find Jesus in the middle of your disagreement and agree with him. Agree with him. Rejoice in the Lord means the same thing. It means find what God is doing in the middle of your circumstance and rejoice in what he's doing. Rejoice in the Lord not necessarily in your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord, always. You will always have a reason to rejoice in the Lord. So why does this matter so much? It keeps coming up over and over again, this this command to rejoice. Why does God tell his people over and over again in the Bible to rejoice? Well, there's a principle here. And it's that when we rejoice, when things are hard and when we rejoice, we show the world that our God is greater than our circumstances. We get to show everyone else that's out there that the Lord we serve, our God, if we're able to rejoice when things are not going well, it's got to be God. And we get to proclaim that goodness, that good news 
uh, by the way that we live in the world. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit who produces in you joy. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is one of the things that the Spirit produces in you. Therefore, it is a supernatural joy. If you're like Paul and you've been beaten and shipwrecked and now you're in prison, you don't have a natural joy. Paul has a supernatural joy, and so can you if you have the Holy Spirit. And when life is hard, if you can rejoice, it shows the world there's something going on there that I don't have. What is that? I want to know. The second command in this passage is be reasonable. And I love this one. I just want to walk around saying it to people all day long. Be reasonable. Be reasonable. It feels like now that I have it in the Bible, I could just walk around. I could pull it out whenever I want. Hey, be reasonable. Be reasonable. But it feels odd, doesn't it? The passage says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And you're going... Sure, I mean, but how do I do that? How do I let the world know that I'm reasonable? You know what I mean? Um, How reasonableness helps us find peace during times of trouble might not make sense immediately, but pay attention. Here we go. We need to understand that word better. In Greek, that word gets used several times in the Bible to describe God's tendency to give something that's not deserved. What do we call that? That's called grace. God's graciousness. It's also used to describe kings who refuse to give, to do what the law demands, and they show mercy. In this same passage, the NIV translates that word as gentleness. The King James translates it as moderation. But what does it mean? The word itself really is pointing away from stubbornness. So what you have with grace is you give something that wasn't deserved. And what you have with mercy is you withhold something that was deserved. And that kind of that kind of flexibility is really what this, this word is pointing to. It's pointing away from a, a hard-hearted stubbornness, and it is pointing toward an ability to be flexible and gracious and merciful, to be gentle and moderate and reasonable. I think the opposite of stubbornness, when I think about it, is meekness as in the meek shall inherit the earth. The idea behind that comes up in the Bible a lot, but we probably know that most clearly from the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. It also comes up before that in Psalm chapter 31, verse 11, where the psalmist writes, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And look at that. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Peace is promised for the meek. And that's the same reason why Paul brought up the same idea here in Philippians 4. When things are hard and you need peace, 
stubborn hard-heartedness is not your friend. When is it? But it, it's especially not your friend when things are hard. It's not in the text, but the more I thought about it this week, the more I was, as I was studying it and I was looking at all the ways that this word is used, I'm such a nerd. I looked at all the ways that it comes up in Homer, the Greek poet, the, when he uses that word in Greek, what is he talking about? And the thing that kept coming to my mind as I just looked at that one word, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What does that mean? I, thought, I kept thinking about a tree. When the wind kicks up and there's turmoil, a tree is able to bend without breaking. It doesn't fight the wind. It doesn't say, I'm here and I'm going to stand straight and there's nothing you can do to stop me because if it does, what will happen? It breaks. The kind of reasonableness that Paul is talking about here is that when life is hard and the storms come up, we need to be able to bend. You, you can stay where you are. Don't give up the things that are essential. But if you don't have to fight, why fight? You need to be able to bend. You need to be able to flex. And that's, the, that's, I think, the point that I'm getting out of this. The principle here is in the storms of this life, we must be willing to bend. Bending keeps us from breaking, amen? And it allows us to have peace even when things aren't going our way. I believe that's the heart of verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It means the world needs to know how resilient we are and that we're not stubborn, that we, don't, we won't negotiate on things that are essential for us, but we're not just going to fight for the sake of fighting. Amen? So be reasonable. That's the reasonableness. When things get rough, our ability to be reasonable and to endure glorifies our God. So in case I wasn't clear, that means... A lot of our stress and troubles can be mitigated by being less stubborn, by being more flexible. Somebody say amen. amen. Thank you. Okay, the third command is don't be anxious. And that one's so easy, we're just going to move right past it. <laughs> so this is a negative command because it's telling you what not to do. But it's a negative command that comes up a lot in the Bible. The classic example, again, is from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where Jesus lists the causes of anxiety in this world. And his conclusion is that God will provide for you if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you put God first, God will take care of everything else. So therefore, his conclusion in verse 34 is, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, which is just a very odd way of saying that today's got its own troubles. Tomorrow's got its troubles. Don't worry about tomorrow. Take care of today. Don't be anxious. Anxiety is a huge issue today. For years and years, the, the number one issue on college campuses, the number one uh, medical issue, diagnosed medical issue on college campuses has been depression. Um, but last year it changed to anxiety. 
Anxiety disorders are the number one diagnosed medical condition on college campuses. The National Institute of Mental Health reports that 38% of teenage girls and 26% of teenage boys have an anxiety disorder diagnosed. Anxiety is the number one issue rising in our youth. But God does not want us to be anxious. He doesn't. Over and over again, he doesn't. Why? Because as Christians, our anxiety, our worry about the future, it makes God look bad. We're God's people. We've been adopted by him into his family. He's the creator of the world. He's the beginning and the end. He's the name above all names, and we're his kids. We are princes and princesses in the, in the kingdom of heaven, amen? amen? Our heavenly Father loves us and takes care of us. When you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, what does that tell the world about our God? It makes him look bad. I used to work in, in schools, and if you had a kid in school who was being really bad, and you said, I'm going to call your father, if the kid went, ah, and just cried, that's a red flag about the father. I mean, every kid's going to cry, but if a kid panics, that tells you something about their dad. When we go through trouble in our life, if we panic, what does it tell the world about our heavenly father? Doesn't look good doesn't look good. So don't be anxious. It comes up over and over, generation after generation, because we live in a fallen world where there's a lot to be worried about. But the question is, do we trust him? Do we believe that he will supply all our needs? Do we believe that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Do we believe that? Then we have to stop being so anxious. Easier said than done. Amen? So how? How do we do that? Well, Paul's not just handing out commands in this passage. There's help too. Look at the last part of verse 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How will that help? How does that help? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace. Peace. In conflict. In trouble. Peace. That's what we want, amen? You can count on God's promises. When I was a kid, I remember my pastor was talking about how you can always count on God's promises. God is always faithful to his promises. And I started thinking, what promises? I can't think of any of God's promises. I just think about what he's telling me to do. I can't think of any of God's promises. And I actually started to write down on, on, on the inside of my Bible, all of God's promises. Every time I found one in the Bible, I would write, this is one of God's promises, not to Israel. Like I didn't think God was promising me land, right? But God's promises for us as believers, 
This is one of them. This is one of them. That if you're anxious, if you're going through trouble, if you pray with thanksgiving. Now, what's nice about thanksgiving is, remember, the first command is to rejoice. If you pray with thanksgiving, it is forcing you to remember God's faithfulness and all of the ways that he's protected you. If you pray with thanksgiving, if you give all those things to God, he will give you his peace. The promise here is that if you give your worries to God with thanks, he will give you his peace. His peace means it's his. It's divine. His peace, it transcends understanding. It confounds the wise. The world looks at it and says, I don't understand how they can be in peace when they're, when they're going through such a hard time. Think about the early church who was so heavily persecuted. How are they still worshiping God? There must be something there. There must be something to it. God's peace, it's divine. It transcends understanding and it stands guard. If God gives you his peace, it guards you like a shield and you carry it around with you, the peace of God. This is the peace that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 11, when he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give, but let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is a spiritual peace that comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's not that we don't have stuff to worry about, amen? You've got stuff to worry about right now. We've got things to worry about, but we have a God who loves us and he's working all things, all things, all things for our good, for our ultimate good, and for his glory. And because of that, during times of trouble, we can and we should rejoice because he's faithful and he's working all these things out. Do we trust him? And we can be flexible. We don't have to be rigid and we don't have to, to, to fight things that we don't need to fight. We can be flexible and we can be gentle and reasonable because we trust him. Because we trust him. And we don't have to be anxious because we will remember the words of Jesus Christ, which I'll end with. The words of Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke, my harness, and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? That's the God that we serve. That's the Jesus that we follow. He's the one that will guide us through all of the trouble and the turmoil of this life. We trust him. Amen? Let's pray.